Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Taylor Beckett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Magnew. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spoon from the Wallaroos. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin and you're listening to Not The Foodish. Yep. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. And we must apologise that there's been a bit of a lapse between the last podcast and this one, but we have had a few dramas. I've been in India, and uh, some of the internet connections at the hotels just weren't good enough. And John, you had helicopters and firewalls <laughs> when <laughs> yeah, we, we tried to do it one day. We did. We had a bit of, a, bit of drama out the back here, but it's all good now. That's good, but it's uh, good to be back, and uh, there's plenty to talk about in sport. Well, it's that time of the year, all the winter codes are up and running, or just about to be up and running, and uh, the summer codes are coming to their conclusion, so there's finals and there's first games all happening at the same time. Now, one of the things I've got to say, in India, obviously, there's a lot of excitement. The T20 World Cup is coming up. India reckons they're going to win back-to-back titles, but it was very interesting because India, they love their cricket. We all know that. And when you pick up any newspaper, there is a full broadsheet page every day on cricket. But it was interesting that there were a lot of the traditionalists in India are very scared. They're actually saying they don't want India to win the T20 because they feel if it does, it is then going to propel T20 into a higher position of importance on the cricket Canada. Now, if you remember, when the first T20 International was played, it was always said, this is just a one-off, it's just a bit of fun. But now, it's being given, and I don't like it because I'm a traditionist, a lot of credibility. I think it's great for pushing the game, getting people involved in the game, but it should, to me, it should never be taken as seriously as a World Cup. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting how even in India now, there are fears that it will harm Test cricket. And as long as you've got the likes of um, Mark Taylor saying that Test cricket should be reduced to four days, uh, which they're saying is, again, the television companies are leaning on certain professionals who are commentators because they want to reduce it. Uh, I don't mind T20 as, as a product to watch. It's all right. It's a bit of fun. I worry what the franchise model has done to cricket because cricket's traditionally been played along regional lines. That's teams are based on regions, and there's a certain amount of support that you get when that sort of scenario is being played out. Whereas with the franchise system, you're playing for a private company, and it's a little bit different. And of course, I know people go ray ray, and there've been lots of good crowds and that, but it's far easier for a fan to switch off that than it is to switch off from, say, their Western Warriors. The Western Warriors are doing bad. I don't feel so good. I like to see them do well and all that sort of stuff. If they're not doing well in the Big Bash, do I really care? If uh, if a privately owned equity company is doing poorly? No, I don't. And I think also you have to look at there again the... And we'll call them mercenaries because there are guys making an absolute mozza of money. And I don't blame them because the money is there. But... Where's their loyalty? Because they'll just go wherever the money is. But the interesting thing is in sport today, they're saying that the young generation follows the player rather than the team. So again, exactly what you're touching on there, are you going to, the only way you can keep that loyalty is to keep a Chris Gale at your franchise. Otherwise, you're going to lose X thousand fans because when he moves to another one, they'll all follow and support that one. It's interesting watching the IPL auction too to see what happens with players, which players don't get picked up or which players are dropped from sides and, and are quickly snavelled up by other people. I wonder how much as well that personalities have to do with it. 
if if you're in WA and uh, you're going to be picked to play for WA, you just have to put up with whoever's in the team, you know. And that's what generally has happened in sport. Whereas I wonder now if if there's not more um, ego coming into it. People say, well, I'm not going to play with that guy. Well, you, you've hit again another issue that was raised in India, and they actually did a report on that. Because you take Pavan Negi, who has only just made an international debut in the T20 series up there in India at the moment. Now, he was the second, I think he was the highest paid Indian, one, or he was picked up 1.3 million US dollars, wow. roughly, with no international credibility at all. Um, and there was, there was saying that within the Indian hierarchy now of players... They're a little bit upset because there are guys who've worked hard, established themselves, and suddenly these guys are getting more money. And so they were actually saying it is destabilizing now the sort of equilibrium of the national team because there are these guys that may be good at just this one component of the game, but they are earning absolutely more and going jumping ahead of guys who've been established. So, again, it's interesting. I mean, people say money is the root of all evil, and it, it may be the thing that destabilizes the game, in which case it'd be very sad. But I think it does create lots of conversation points. Well, we've often had private discussions and discussions on, on air about how much sports people get paid and the remuneration that they're getting. And recently, during a little conversation with a friend, we came up with a theory that, no Australian sports person should be paid more than a digger in Afghanistan. That's a really good one, actually. I mean, because if you go through the logic of, the, of that particular argument, then why should a bloody sportsman get paid all of that money and a person to protecting our freedom and our defence get paid so little? Fair anyway, it. that's, you know, that's a an intellectual discussion for another time, perhaps. But it's funny because that raises the other one. I don't know if you've seen that. You've probably heard of a footballer called Jimmy Greaves. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was a legend in English football. He's had a career in television, and he's now in a home and needs care. And apparently there's no money there. And a lot of the fans of Tottenham, they've, they've Tottenham Hotspur, which is probably the club he was most associated with, uh, have set up a fund to raise some money to look after his care. But a lot of the fans have turned around going, if you asked every player on your squad now to just give £5,000 of their salary, which is a phenomenal salary again, if every one of your squad, which is something like you know 30 players, gave $5,000, you could cover his costs for probably the next two and years. Those guys wouldn't even miss five grand. They wouldn't even know it was gone out of their bank accounts. And when you look at the way they're playing this year... Yeah, you know, so, I mean, uh, but the thing is, the sad, I think the sad thing is some of those players wouldn't even know who Jimmy Greaves was um, because I find a lot of the, and not all, but there are a lot of the modern day sportsmen who have no regard for the history of the past. And some of them will tell you that they don't, they never really followed the game or they only followed one team and they don't know. And I find that's quite sad as well. I find it interesting when you hear top line sports people say, oh, I don't watch. I don't watch other games, or I don't really follow. What? <laughs> what do you mean you don't follow? That's the competition you're in, mate. You should be following that at very least. Well, I can tell you uh, one particular time I was sitting with a Perth Glory coach, a former one, and we were watching a game, and one of the players rang him on his mobile, and uh, the coach goes, aren't you watching the game? He goes, what game? He goes, our opponents next week yeah. are on the TV at the moment. He goes, oh, I didn't know they were playing. Oh, uh-huh. And he goes, what can you do? You know, if people don't even want to look at next week's opponents and watch them play to see how they can maybe combat them. 
Hi, I'm Gordon Banks, and I'm listening to Not The Footy Show. While you're mentioning coaches of Perth glory, Kenny bloody low. He's just... Is that his middle name? Oh, it should be now. It should be Kenny bloody low. What have you done? Because he's, he's turned that mob around something... Look, I, I haven't seen it. I've been away. I haven't seen any of their games, but I've been watching it and I've been watching the highlights on the internet and absolutely hats off to him. The one thing, and I'm, people are going to say I'm being negative or I'm dissing, I can't understand how, because some of those players, they paid out their contracts from my understanding, how they've managed to bring all the others in still within the salary cap unless they've offered them really minimal money this year and next year they're going to have to top it up, which That's may right. well be what they've done. Uh, I mean, obviously, Adam Taggart is just sitting here uh, clicking his thumbs or whatever. But, but again, I find that really sad. Here's a 23-year-old player. And remember, we did say this on air. Yeah. You know, He's gone to Fulham, who at the time were just about to drop out of the Premier League. And realistically, was he going to get game time? No, he wasn't. And to me, that is, again, a prime example of a player who's badly managed. So he's gone to England for a year, went on loan up to Scotland, and now he's back in Australia. And that's not good for his career because some clubs will look at that, and I think Taggart will go back to Europe, but some clubs will look at that and go, well, he went over once, he failed, so why should we look at him? And, and so t at 23, that pathway could be closed. And if that's the case, it's very sad. I think some of these players have to look, when they're going across to Europe, Sign for a club where they're going to play because you're only young and the only way you're going to improve is by playing football. The only way you're going to climb the ladder is by being in the shop window and that is by playing football and getting results. So signing for a big club and not playing is not going to do you any good whatsoever. Uh, speaking of signing, the emergence of China as the money bag of, of world football and how that's going to affect not only what goes on at other clubs around the world and other other leagues but the A-League especially because say in the last few years there's been a few guys head up to China is that door going to close to Australian players now because of the money and the, the ability to drag players from other leagues well you know a year ago I did some commentary on the Chinese Super mm. League and all I can say is outside of probably four teams the league is pretty poor it wasn't very good okay. it was very slow very laborious a lot of the older players were not that good that, that yet you had your Guangzhou Evergrande who were signing younger players and then have then sold them on and made a profit so there are clubs like that that are being smart but then Guangzhou has actually more money than a lot of the other clubs but the scary thing it well not the scary thing the, what, the impressive thing and I forget the exact figure because I don't have it in front of me is how much China is now investing to set up football academies around the country in the next five years. It's something in the region, of, I think it was 20 or 30 million, that they're going to set up all of these. The TV deal they've got for the Chinese Super League, 860 million. Wow. Um, so it's going to be very hard. But the point you make is a very valid one. I, I think you are going to see less Australians going. I think you'll see more of the sort of second tier or European players or, or guys that are coming to the end who've probably got a couple of years left. A bit like the J-League was initially. Okay. I think you're going to see that happen. But yeah, it may well shut that off, which is going to cause problems for the A-League because a lot of the players that have gone to China, the reason... Clubs have let them go, apart from the fact they've made a lot of money, the players that have gone. I know particularly one of them was on 850000 for a year. That was US. And yeah. I think that was, <laughs> that was after tax, if he was tax-free. So he's set up for life. 
that particular player. And he only played one season up there uh, and then came back to the A-League. But the key thing is they pay a transfer fee to the A-League clubs and the A-League clubs need those transfer fees. And with no transfer fees within the A-League, which I still find crazy and I think it needs to come in, um, you know, how are A-League clubs going to make money? The scary thing is I've heard, and I'm not going to say which A-League club it is, and again, it was a piece I wrote, and I warned people about this, is now that we have the A-League clubs with teams in the MPL, and they've got junior teams going all the way through, they are now saying, and there's a, currently a case going on, where an A-League club is not allowing a player that went to Europe to sign for the European club, they want their development fee. They want €80,000 for this player. Whereas the actual state league club, who he played all his development years, he played in, in the youth league, I believe, for one season or something. They have actually waived their fees because they want the, the, the young boy who's 19 to be given the opportunity to live his dream and play European football. Uh, whereas the A-League club is going, no, we want our fee. Who's had nothing really to do with Not his development much. as a player. He's, he's probably had about 10 months of involvement with them. Yeah, okay. And that's not right. No, it's not. But, uh, you can but you see, that's the only way they see now their chance of making money. Yeah, exactly. I, I think they've still got a tweak with the A-League model. It's, it's not, it's no not working at the me. moment. Yeah. I mean, it's been an interesting season. And it's coming to the pointy end. I think it's it's only a pity that the FFA Cup was played so long ago. Yeah, I do. I I really think that they've got to spread that through the season. So as as we come to the culmination of the the regular season, like every finals, league in the world has exactly. And you know what about oh so and so could be involved in uh, in this and they might be in finals as well. well. There's a good chance that they might not be in finals. But as we've said, <laughs> you know, for... see that in the FA Cup, you. Very often yeah. see teams that finish nowhere near the top of the Premier League playing off in the FA Cup. But but if you look as well, to the FFA Cup still, and we've gone on about it, it's going over old ground. It has to be out of the hat, first in, first out, best dressed. None of this rigging the league. And also teams, if they're drawn at home, should be allowed to play at home. What I would like to see is if, for example, a Perth Glory was drawn against a Heidelberg in Victoria and Heidelberg want to host the game and they don't have floodlights that are up to standard, then the game plays on a Saturday. Let them play it on a Saturday, and the, the A-League game gets moved to midweek. Why not do that? Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon. Yeah, you know, it's, let them... If we are about this football family, which is a dysfunctional family, in my opinion, <laughs> but uh, if we're talking about that, then we have to support those little clubs and give them the chance to make money. Speaking of dysfunctional families, could you believe what happened the week after the Western Sydney Wanderers get slammed for the the flares? What happened at the Melbourne game? And that, that was just astonishing to think that the fans would let themselves and the sport down like that. Yeah, it was. I was left speechless when I read that. I couldn't believe it. And I'm sick of this. Oh, it's it's only half a dozen blokes, and it's only it's not, mate. It's it's a couple of hundred who are getting involved. There's people dancing around those flares. It is not just a handful of people involved. The, the only thing, again, you wonder with that, and I know this happened in the old NSL, was fans would go into the ground the day before and hide the flares um, because people were saying, oh, you know, the security didn't do their job. They, they used to, where there were grass banks, they would bury them under yeah, the yeah. turf. So 
It, it is in a the old days, one. but yeah. you can't get into Eddie Head Stadium, mate. During oh. the week, you can't just walk in there and hide flares under the concrete seating. I think you'd be surprised, John, has some of the stadia you can actually get in if you want. Okay. You can actually walk in there. There may be some security. A lot of them, there's not security during the week. They're yeah. meant to be blocked off, but you can actually get in if you really wanted to. Okay. I mean, I've walked into a few of them in Australia just to have a look and just said, oh, I just want to have a look. I thought the most ludicrous suggestion, though, amongst the whole of this was uh, regulating the sales of flares. I, I would like to point out that it is only a problem in one Australian sport. The rest of the Australian community manages to use flares in a reasonable and responsible manner. Hi, I'm Willie Miller, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Quickly moving on from that, what did you make of the FIFA elections? I thought they were the most underwhelming thing I've ever seen. And it worries me because Infantino, has, uh, the new president of FIFA, has promised to pay every association $3 million uh, US dollars, uh, just donation. That's 209 associations. And then I think he's promised it's either 30 or $40 million to every uh, confederation. And there's six confederations. So you work out that. And, you know, FIFA at the moment, they reckon, is in the worst financial position it's been for years. So where's he going to get this money? I mean, he's got to win sponsors back on board because a lot of them have left. And the other thing that was interesting was reading a piece by Benita Merciades, I think it was, saying how the only reason a lot of those reforms went through was because if they didn't address them, the Swiss could actually step in and uh, take further action against them. And there was another twist with the sponsors. So they were backed into a corner. I still think there's needs to be a lot more change than just throwing money around. Well, did he make those promises before or after he was elected? Before. Oh, what a surprise he'd do that. What about spending the money on building the stadiums, football stadiums in Africa that you promised to build? Yeah. What What about the whole list of other stuff that FIFA's promised for years and years to do and never done? What about doing something about you know the the African players that get stolen by European clubs, essentially stolen? What about doing something about that? What about doing something about the transfer system? What about doing something for the good of the game rather than the good of the pockets of the people who are going to end up with the money? Well, the scary thing is they've increased the number of members now of the executive council. So that's going to go up, and he wants to increase the number of teams at the World Cup to 40 from 32. And apparently it's only going to add three more days of actual competition. Uh, 40 doesn't seem to me to be a number that divides equally into being able to run the draw properly. How do you run, how do you run a draw with 40 teams? Oh, that, that's an interesting one. So you're going to give, give a free card to, say, the last title holder only has to come in at the quarterfinals. Is that what you're talking about? I yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I think he's looking at five teams, was it, in a group, and then so there'd be eight groups of five. And uh, top two go through. Yeah. Why, why don't you just have a World Cup with 209 teams in it? One of the things I'd like to see is, with air travel the way it is today, I think I'd like to see him do away with the confederation qualification process. So what I would like to see is the best teams in the world qualifying for the World Cup. So what you do is you seed X amount of teams, 
you know, maybe the top 20 all get seeded, and then you do draws for who they play in the qualification. So it may mean that Australia ends up playing a European team in qualification, a South American team, as well as an Asian team and an Oceania team. But it means that the best teams end up at the finals rather than we make sure we've got four from Asia, five from South America, six from Europe, you know, because uh, are they really the best teams in the world? Well, does FIFA really want to be in a position where, say, a team from Asia doesn't make it? The, one of their biggest, potentially biggest viewing areas that they're going to have... And they don't, there's no Asian team, there's no but, China, but then there's is, no is, Japan. Or, yeah, but then you look, I know that, and that's the, the key I mean, thing. there's always a chance through the confederation system that those teams won't make it. But what you're doing is you're guaranteeing that someone from that region is going to provide the people of that area with something to look at. True. And I, but the sad thing is, if you look at Asia at the last World Cup, all well, four teams finished bottom and all four went home, you know, in their, after their I don't think games. they... Was this, no, there's other teams that scored, but they're, they're, yeah, you're right. There was no, they didn't win a point. No team no, got a point. They all, they all went home at the end of the pool stage. Well, well, and that's. Do you want that? Do you want? Well, essentially, what you're going to end up doing is excluding whole regions because. Uh, that's a good it's, argument. It, it, it's a bit like uh, having Namibia at the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, but they qualified. <laughs> yeah, well, they did, and, and but they didn't qualify against Scotland, Italy. If you know what I mean, they qualified through a different a different pool system. So maybe what they've got to come but, up with is A and B nations. But or rugby does have that. a repertoire charge towards the end, so the lesser nations do play off for that. Yeah, for that for that opportunity the slot. I mean, World World Cup of cricket used to have that system where they there did. were two slots for people outside the top ten, and they. Yeah, it used play to be the, whoever the two finalists of the ICC yeah. trophy went through. Yeah. But now they've cut that. It's back to ten teams or something. Yeah. Which is a real pity. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me, hit me. Je t'adore, ich liebe dich. Hit me, hit me, hit me. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me slowly, hit me quick. Hit me, hit me, hit me. We've been talking a fair bit. We should probably welcome our first, uh, or our only guest for this particular <laughs> podcast. And uh, when I was up in India, I caught up with the man who coached Australia, the Kookaburras, to their only ever Olympic gold medal, and that is Barry Dancer. Barry Dancer, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Yes, thank you. Well, Barry, the reason we're talking to you is that the Olympic year and the Australian hockey team has always been going into Olympic Games as one of the favourites, but that gold medal has been very elusive. Why do you think that's been over the years? I don't think there's any one particular reason. Um, I think, again, the, the system's been strong, and it's been consistently strong, and it's matured over decades. The fact that we're always favoured as one of the top teams is a good thing, just that uh, there's a few elements at the very death and in the battle of an Olympic competition that become more critical, and sometimes it works, and most times it doesn't. Do you think sometimes the expectation in Australia is too great, that they don't really understand how an Olympic competition is the pinnacle of the sport and yet people sort of, therefore it becomes a very different game? Um, I think part of the strategy is for the players and support staff to embrace that expectation, not to shy away from it. So uh, perennially, over the last three or four Olympics, um, the men's hockey team's been under that spotlight of being the bridesmaids um, not really performing to the ultimate level um, but
but I think for teams to be successful, they need to take that on fully, not hide it, but um, talk about it, discuss it, consider it fully, and then embrace the challenge. If we go back to your playing career, 76, you won a silver in Montreal, and that was the first Olympics where the game was played on turf. Was there an expectation for gold there, or was it because it was turf a very new experience? Um, the expectation on the men's hockey team then wasn't great publicly. Um, the team then had grown over a couple of years and I think developed some degree of um, belief going into that tournament. We'd had a quite uh, demanding tour of Pakistan not long before and we'd played well there and Pakistan were clearly the world leaders at that point. So there's a quiet confidence in the group. But again, the, the public spotlight wasn't anywhere near what it is now on the men's team. Um, until the latter stages when we were one of few medal chances so then all of a sudden the spotlight and a lot of interest came to the hockey team so it was quite a different situation. Do you look back on that game 1-0 you lost to New Zealand do you think you could have won it do you still think about it? Uh, I don't think about it a lot but um, I know that we should have done better so it was a very strong New Zealand team that had developed well and um, quite an experienced talented group who were underrated in that tournament as well but um, we played nowhere near our best. And some of the lessons of that particular tournament, plus a lot of other lessons I think have accumulated over the years for the Kookaburras program. So the, the maturity is there now to deal with some of those situations better. The one thing I found interesting before sort of researching I talked to you was in that tournament, you lost to the Netherlands and you lost to Argentina in the group stage. And then when you were coach um, in 90, uh, 2004, you had them in your group again, but you drew both those games. Did you see sort of an, an omen there, or do you not look at things like that? Uh, no, I think there was a couple of omens along the way in 2004, but nothing like that one. Um, yeah, and, it's, and again, even the, the success in 2004 wasn't um, all good. It was a bumpy ride for some of those matches in the round matches. Um, but certainly by the time we'd reached that Olympic tournament and by the time we reached the finals, there was a genuine belief in the team that we could win it. I mean, they'd had bronze, I think it was, in 96, silver in 92. So, again, getting to those crucial stages in the tournament, was, it, was there a lot of nerves amongst the players in 04, or were they convinced they could go the whole way? I think um, one of the qualities and the characteristics of the 04 team was that it was quite a young team, probably, uh, relatively speaking, uh, quite inexperienced compared to some of those other Olympics that you're talking about. So... Um, in some ways, that innocence, naivety um, was helpful. Um, the fear of failure probably wasn't as strong because people hadn't been there. There were a few players in that group that had been to 2000 and experienced the disappointment of a semi-final loss. Um, and probably the fear of uh, failure weighed on them a little bit more than our younger groups. So you know, part of the piece of the puzzle is coping with that Olympic pressure, as you say, and every four years, because it's a four-year event, the pressure is greater. You only get that opportunity and maybe in some players' lives just once. Um, so the pressure on this group uh, back in 2004, I think uh, they cope with very well. Jamie Dwyer got the winner after extra time, extra time being played in those days. What do you remember about that? Was it pretty nerve-wracking on the side? Um, in a way, uh, it, in the flow of the game, um, it was just another event in the lead-up. 
my recollection was it was just on half time of extra time. There's no way from the stands I was going to make my way down. I was talking to Colin Batch, our assistant coach, about just keeping the same things happening. Not that he would have had a lot of chance to do that because of the way the game's played at the break. Um, so really, in the lead-up to that corner, nothing different. Obviously, when the ball went in, very different. I'm sure it was a very special moment. You two stayed in charge, yourself and Colin Batch, for the Beijing Games. Was it, again, the hunted in that situation? Were you very much the team that everyone was looking to beat? Um, I think the lead-up to 2008, there were three or four teams that were clearly in that top group. Um, so really, between ourselves, Germany, Spain... Um, if I look at the group, there are teams right very close to us as well. Um, so there was no, to me, clear favourite. We certainly, in the lead-up from 2006 to 2008, um, we weren't the dominant team, um, but we were a team that was very capable of winning. So I don't think we were necessarily hunted. I'd like to think that some of the things we're doing in 2004-05 um, influenced some of the things that other teams were starting to do against us but we weren't really a team that stood out apart from the rest in 2008. You mentioned Spain as a strong team in that era, and they were the team that beat you in the semi-finals. You were 2-0 up and ended up losing 3-2. Is that a game, again, you feel slipped through your fingers? Uh, it was a game where for six, six, 70 minutes we didn't play well. Um, the 2-0 lead was an aberration. We weren't the dominant team. We were playing poorly in the first half. Um, and as the game wore on, we didn't improve. And um, it was a disappointing performance that led to the outcome that was happening. You know, in the end, they scored and deservedly won the game. Um, so really the disappointment with me and the team, I think, was that we didn't play anywhere near our potential in the semi-final when it counted most. So you could live with that forever. You could have regrets forever. Um, and the team moved on very quickly, obviously, to had to, to play Holland in a couple of days' time. And we got the result I think we deserved against Holland. But uh, the, the, you know, the, the regrets of that semi-final lived with a lot of players and myself, I'm sure, for a long time. It does mean you've got a complete set of gold, silver and bronze medals. Uh, it does. But, um, yeah, in the scheme of things, it would have been nice to be different colours, yeah. I'm sure they would. Now, in 2012, Rick Charles was said to his group of players because they'd swept the board, winning everything around the world. He goes, if you don't win the gold, you've let yourselves down. And sadly, obviously, they didn't. Again, what, looking back on that, do you think they maybe should have done? Uh, it's hard to comment from the outside. Uh, again, you don't know the inner workings. And again, I was a person at a distance from the program and international hockey at that stage. Look, I just think that era was a very strong era for the Kookaburras. Um, unquestionably, that team went in as the hot favourites, and because of their performance from 2009 right through that Olympiad, they deservedly held that title. And again, I think to then not fulfil your expectation, um, you know, I think about hockey teams, Australian hockey teams in the 80s. You know, they went to the 84 Olympics similar to the 2012 team as the red-hot favourites because of what they'd achieved in the three or four years in the lead-up and came away with really next to nothing. Um, so it can all happen very quickly. It can unravel very quickly uh, in sport, as we know. And for that team, sadly, it did. 2016 now. How do you think they can go in Rio again? The results have been good for them in the last year, although they have had a few upsets which have maybe just put them in check. Yeah, look, I think the team's in a strong place. Uh, the program's in a strong place. I mean, we've got 
a very healthy depth in the group of world-class and good, solid international players. Um, the systems are strong, coaching support and other support around the program strong. So they're well positioned. Um, I think the last event, which I didn't see live, but I just saw some highlights back in Australia where they won the World League, to me, uh, first impressions were that they had to fight hard. And, uh, and in the end, when the really demands and the greatest pressure was on at the business end of that tournament, there was a real commitment and uh, combative nature, more a strong warrior-like approach to things. And even some of the body language was showed a determination that is needed in the the heat of Olympic competition so they're well positioned um, a lot of things need to go right in the end you'd still need that little bit of luck to go your way with no injuries um, strong program but also even in the final or the semi-final you know the toss of the coin sometimes just luck can turn your way and make a big difference is there anything you learned from your Olympic experiences that you feel is a key component apart from as you touched on their luck coming into it uh, look, I don't think there's, there's any particular one thing. I mean, I think I look back um, of a successful campaign versus an unsuccessful campaign in Beijing. So I look at some of the elements of 2004 and reflect on those. And a lot of it was about the commitment, um, the selflessness of the players towards their teammates and the program. A lot of it was about being able to trust in their preparation because their preparation was so thorough. Um, and in the end that little bit of luck so I think everything you can do before the tournament proper is important um, it's the it's the foundation for a successful tournament I think I look back at it as a, as a coach and think well I think I got in the way a couple of times in 2004 in the end it didn't matter um, you look back as a coach and think what else could we have done in 2008 so in the end you could drive yourself crazy uh, but I think in the end, you know that it's just not one or two or three factors. There's a whole range of factors. And in the end, it's how you manage some of those Olympic pressures probably that counts most. Well, let's hope, Barry, that 2016, it is another goal for Australia. Yeah, indeed. I'd be certainly very, very pleased to see the team and this group of players particularly and support staff achieve that success. Thanks very much for your time. OK, thank you, Ashley. Hi, I'm Samir Dad, Olympian, hockey player. You're watching on me, not the footy show. Well, that was Barry Dancer, and uh, John, he is a, a man I have the utmost respect for. I thought it was very interesting, you know, that he's got the full collection of, a of uh, Olympic medals, but he was saying he'd rather have had uh, some of them all the same colour. Yeah, I mean, it... it you could say that the Australian men's team is underachieved at Olympic level. I mean, that's, that's been really, really harsh because compared to a lot of other sports have been our most consistent. They've won a lot of medals, just not the gold one. Well, they're the only, I think they're the only Australian sporting team to have been ranked in the top four for over 30 years. Wow, that's pretty impressive. That's consistency. Well, it's interesting too in all this stuff we've had recently about women's sport and we've had threats that if from the Australian Sports Commission, if you don't treat your women athletes the same as your men, you're going to lose your funding and all this sort of stuff. Hockey's been doing it for years. Hockey's been had these athletes they've treated pretty much equally for a long, long time and no one ever mentions hockey. You know, they, they oh, well, look, look what football's doing now. The Matildas have got to get this and they've got to... Well, look at what hockey's been doing. 
go, go and find out how they how they manage to do it, and maybe you guys at the FFA will be able to do it. Well, to be fair, I know that Soccer Australia did do that. They had oh, a two-day seminar with hockey. That was before it became the FFA. Uh, and they sat down because Ron Smith told me about the whole... He was involved in it when he was working at the AIS. And they sat down and looked at any comparisons, what they could learn from each other, etc., etc. But just going back to Barry Dunst, it was great at the Hockey India League that he finally lifted uh, the trophy. Having been in the final with the JP Punjab Warriors the last two years and having lost in a shootout, and really should have won both of those finals. It was great to yeah, see his team. Last year especially. Yeah, it was great to see his team get up this year. And I was saying to him afterwards, uh, uh, that it was also his 50th game in charge. Okay. So he's the first coach to have coached 50 games in the Hockey India League. But I said to him afterwards, that must complete the collection now. You must have won everything there was in world hockey. And he looked at me and goes, no. Nah. He goes, I never won the World Cup. He's won everything else, oh, wow. but he never won the World Cup. But that's still a pretty impressive record. Now, some of those new rules while we're talking on the hockey, the two-goal thing, how did that work? It was very interesting because I was not too keen on the idea at the beginning. I was not too keen on it from a broadcast point of view because uh, I felt it was very hard to kind of explain it. But the one thing, there were actually only two games that it impacted on the result. And they were games that Darbang Mumbai won, uh, and both would have been a draw otherwise. But because they got the field goal, they ended up winning. Where it had a massive impact, and this may show what a nerdy kind of guy I am, but I was meant to be going out to dinner with a guy um, one night, and then he cancelled. He said he didn't feel too well. So I was in my room, and I thought, oh, I wonder how it would have affected the league ladder if it was the old scoring method. And it was incredible. The, the, the top team, Ranchi, would have still been top of the ladder. Darbang Mumbai would have been bottom, which they were at that particular time. and But they would have had no chance of making the finals. All of the four teams in from second through to fifth all changed positions. And in fact, wow. Delhi, who was sitting second bottom, would have been second on the ladder and would have actually been safe and confirmed in the finals. Whereas as it was with the way the two goals for a field goal, they only qualified for the finals in their last game. So it had a massive impact there. Where it had another great impact, I think, was actually towards the end of the games because teams started to think differently. They may have been losing 2-1, but they're going, if we get a field goal, we can win. And so if they won a penalty corner, they played it outside the dotted line and were looking yes, for the... T yes. So you saw... I don't think anyone necessarily executed it perfectly, but it really changed the dynamic of games in that last five, seven minutes if a team was trailing because they were suddenly like, you know what? If we get a field goal, we can get a draw, we can get... A, and, you know, they would then get points or they could steal five points instead of getting one point or two points for, you know, losing by two goals or less. So... It changed the dynamic of it. It was quite interesting because Moritz Furster, in an interview, the German captain said before the final that he liked it. And then post the final, when his team had lost, he was asked the same question. He goes, I don't like it. I need to get rid of it. So it was amazing how an hour later things changed dramatically. Well, I, I mean, personally, a goal's a goal. And the ball going in the net is worth one. And that's how it should always be. To, well, where, where goals against, are hard to score, mate, whether they be penalty corners or, or field goals. You know. The other thing, John, that was really interesting was the idea of it was to make teams go for more field goals. 
the interesting thing was there was one goal less in the tournament this year because there were four penalty corner uh, penalty strokes in 2015. There were only three this year. The incredible thing was the field goals was exactly the same. The penalty corners was exactly the same. Wow. So there was no difference in the way goals were scored in both tournaments. Changing the value of them doesn't make them any harder or lesser to achieve. No. Uh, and... You know what? When you're playing hockey, if you've got the ball in the middle of the field, you're, you're in midfield and you're looking around to see if there's a winger or your inside forwards open or something. You're not thinking, you know what? We've got to get a, we've got to score a field goal because if we only get a penalty corner, it's worth one less. You don't. You're not. You're never going to think that. You're looking to score. If you're at the halfway mark, you're looking to score a, a field goal. Once you're down near that D, maybe your mind changes and you're in there. Oh, roll it on a foot. Great. We've got a penalty corner. I couldn't get a shot on goal. You, always your instinct is to go for the field goal first. The, the, that was the interesting thing. Ranchi Rays and Delhi Wave Riders both spoke to both their coaches, who happened to both be Indian coaches, who just said, look, if we get in the D and we can't get a foot, we're going to take the penalty corner. And that's and, always been the and, way. And they, that's, so they stuck to those tactics and you know they played off for third and fourth. So that, that was very interesting. The other one that was interesting was Glenn Turner. He had a goal in the semi-final, which... He actually wasn't sure whether he touched it, and the video umpire spent ages looking at it. I don't think he touched it from the vision I had, uh, and I was commentating on that game. But he sort of went up as if he touched it, but it was at the same time that a stick hit his stick. Uh, the goal wasn't allowed, and he, he said to me afterwards, you know, but that could be the difference between me winning the top scorer in the tournament. But he obviously scored field goals, so he got the double points, and he ended up winning the top goal scorer. You, you felt sorry for Rapinder Pal Singh because he actually scored the most goals, 12 penalty corners, but he didn't win it. But he did win the player of the tournament and got a very nice check for 75000 US dollars for being player of the tournament. Yeah, that's an interesting one you pull up there because if you get two points for a, a field goal, yeah, that changes the player awards and money's involved. Yeah. And, I mean, money can make a big difference to a player's life. Now, before we go, uh, another rule um, imbroglio that we've had recently, the man can. Now, oh, yes, yes. The uh, Under-19 World Cup, I believe, uh, was won West Indies, can. yep. Uh, and I was surprised at the vitriol that came out against it. What's wrong with man-catting a bloke? I would have thought, especially in the era of T20 cricket... A man-cad would be seen as an absolutely legitimate way to dismiss a batsman who's trying to creep up the pitch, who's trying to pinch that sig signal, signal, single. Um, why do people have a problem with man-cadding? Don Bradman didn't have a problem with man-cadding. Bill Brown, who got man-cadded, didn't have a problem with being man-cadded. Was he? Did he give a warning or did he just do it straight? I think there was a warning, but yeah. even, even, even then. Mate, the rules state you can't leave your crease until, until the bowlers bowl release yeah. the ball. And if we look, everyone when they back up does leave at just as the bowlers are about exactly. to deliver it. So, now, look, I, I agree with you. I don't have a problem with it. I've seen guys, you know, halfway down the track went in a limited overs game where they've got to get runs. And you think, well, why can't I do it, you know? You should be allowed to. It's The, the batsman's supposed to stay in his crease until the bowler releases the ball. Now, if you don't want people man-catted, change the rule. Don't get upset They're by laws people. of cricket, Ooh, sorry, remember? Sorry, the laws, yes. Yeah, you got me again on that. But don't get upset with people who are operating within the laws. Then that's not their problem. Change the law. 
Now, I and hopefully though that win for the West Indies may see some impetus in their cricket, and they might see them restore some pride to it, and they'll climb a little bit back up the ladder. I doubt it. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. I think their cricket's a mess at the moment. I think what will happen is any of these young guys coming through showing any sort of form or ability, there's no financial security with them playing for the West Indies. We've seen what a basket case it is, and these guys are going to jump onto the 2020 bandwagon as soon as they can, no. which is really sad. I agree. Well, that should probably wrap it up for this one, but we will be back uh, with another podcast very soon. So stay tuned and look out for it on the website and on the Facebook page. Thanks, Ash. Some on the pitch. They think it's all over. See ya. We'll be back next week.